This episode of New Politics was recorded on Friday the 13th of August, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, the Delta outbreak keeps spiralling out of control and the political games means that it's going to be with us for some time to come. And who's winning in the climate change wars? Australia thinks that it's leading the pack, but it's going to become the biggest loser ever. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, binge-watching TV till the end of the century. Thanks to our new Patreon subscribers, Steve, Matt, Patrick, Travis, Kayleen, Kim, Roy, Shalini, Kevin and James. We might actually have to set up a separate podcast just to announce all the new subscribers that we've been receiving. But thanks for all of your support. It helps keep our little venture ticking along. And the mini podcast that we produce for our Patreon subscribers, it mainly responds to some of the queries that we receive from our subscribers. So keep sending in those responses. And if you want more details about our Patreon account, you can find it on our website, newpolitics.com.au. More parts of Sydney are going into lockdowns and it's almost like extracting teeth for the New South Wales government with three extra local government areas placed into tighter restrictions. And as we keep pointing this out, they're slowly starting to put in the strict restrictions that they should have put in place in early June. As a comparison, the ACT has put in a full lockdown after three COVID cases. Victoria is continuing its lockdown after 23 cases. But New South Wales is finally waking up to the fact that it's got a disaster on its hands after 345 daily case numbers. It's hard to believe that the medical advice and epidemiology would be so different in New South Wales compared to the rest of Australia. But whenever there's strange behaviour in politics, which doesn't make any sense to anyone else looking out, it's best to look behind the scenes to find out what's really going on. Now, we've been told that if the New South Wales Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, had put in the hard, fast and early lockdowns that she should have put in, that she would have been rolled by the New South Wales Liberal Party and she'd be looking for a different job today. So she's managed this Delta outbreak in a way that gives a little bit of what both sides of her parliamentary cabinet want, but ultimately pleases nobody, created an almost unmanageable health crisis in New South Wales, resulted in a viral outbreak that has been exported to the rest of Australia. Now, this is the worst possible outcome for public health and the community, and it's because we have a New South Wales Premier who was more interested in protecting her own job and protecting her factional interests within the New South Wales Liberal Party than any concerns about public health and safety. I've said before, we're governed by children, we're governed by vested interests, we're governed by corruption and nepotism in New South Wales. It'd be bad enough if New South Wales was relatively self-contained like some of the other states, but New South Wales is the gateway to Australia from overseas and the gateway to a lot of Australia from the rest of Australia. We needed good, mature, strong government. We got Gladys and a grubby group of grifters. The cabinet is divided. There is I'll call the sensible half who actually want to follow health orders, who understand to a greater or lesser extent that business can't survive in a pandemic and that to let the virus rip is ultimately bad for the economy. And you've got the Christian right 
and those two terms together are what I'm criticizing. I'm not criticizing the right necessarily, and I'm not criticizing Christianity necessarily, but when you get that faction together who are deeply religious but not terribly Christian by my reading of the New Testament, who are ruthless, who are really funded by American uh, libertarianism, that's where our problem has been. We also have massive donors whose interests are in keeping the city open. Retailers, the Australian Hoteliers Association, the Gambling Association, the, the lobbies there. I don't blame them per se for wanting to stay open. They need people going in through the doors. But again, there seems to be this lack of understanding that if your shop or if your place of business is infected with COVID, it will have all kinds of long-term effects. One, you'll have people who will get COVID and some of them may die. Some of them may get long COVID and be affected for months and months and months. There are people who still have long COVID who caught it last March. We don't know really the shape of that disease yet. They're worried about the short-term loss of money. One of the more disgraceful behaviours of this crew was their willingness to take JobKeeper and pocket it and not pass it through to their employees while standing their employees down. Gladys, I don't think, is particularly well-equipped to handle this type of division. I'm pretty sure the only reason she is still there, given that there's been incident after incident after incident where other leaders would have resigned just through pure Westminster principle. And of course, in the Westminster principle, you don't necessarily resign because you personally have done the wrong thing. You resign because something has happened that you perhaps should have had uh, more influence over and you could have stopped the wrong thing from being done. The standards were set very high. John Howard tried to lower them with his ministerial standards, which he kept watering down after he found that his ministers couldn't maintain them. But we require the highest of standards. In New South Wales, we've just had awful low standards. And we have had since O'Farrell, probably since before, actually, probably since Bob Carr stepped down, the corrupt factions in both parties have been running wild. We need a total reform here. And we need sensible people running pandemic management. So unfortunately for the citizens of New South Wales, what we're seeing is a battle between two right wings of the Liberal Party. And that's the more palatable and more presentable right wing of the Liberal Party and the Christian right faction of the Liberal Party. All of the action between these two is happening behind closed doors, of course, but it's manifesting itself publicly through bad public policy and inept management of the pandemic. And most people looking at this would be thinking, wow, you know, case numbers are getting out of control. You've got 390 case numbers today, and that's a record. And the virus is spreading to the rest of New South Wales. It's going to other parts of Australia as well. It's time to do something about it. Look at what Victoria is doing. Look at what the other states and territory governments are doing. They've got their outbreaks under control. Why is New South Wales managing this in such a different way? And it's not just the political leaders here. The most successful countries all around the world are the ones that have locked down hard, fast and early and implemented a meaningful lockdown that works. And that's just not happening in New South Wales. So it's the hard right faction of the Liberal Party that's behind all of this. And if you, if you wanted to remove a leader 
who is successful and has popular support in the electorate, well, this is the way to do it. You force them into a corner where they act in a way that creates a complete disaster. Berejiklian was very popular up until June this year. Her support has plummeted because of her poor management of this Delta outbreak. So this is politics at its worst. She's been set up to fail by her own party, and that's from the hard-right Christian faction. And this is the way that you destroy a popular premier. You bring them down and then you put someone in from your own faction. And no doubt moves are afoot. I'm just not sure that anybody wants the job at the moment, which is why I think uh, Gladys has survived so long. Uh, she should have gone when she lied to ICAC and then she was caught shredding official documents, which is an absolute no-no. I've spent a lot of time working with uh, state records in the past, and the, the law is clear. Anything meant for state records goes to state records. They decide how many copies they want, and if anything should be shredded, not much gets shredded. Then again, more recently, she's been caught out again with uh, further revelations with her relationship with Daryl Maguire and how that affected are the spending of public money. And the important part of that sentence is how that affected the spending of public money. Whoever gets it from here will be handed a hospital pass and none of them want it. There's a couple of candidates who probably could do it, but it would finish their careers as politicians heading to an almost definite electoral loss. Although in New South Wales, it's hard to tell. And it's a question that we've been asked a few times. Why is Gladys Berejiklian still the Premier of New South Wales with all of those allegations of corruption surrounding her? Yet back in 2014, the New South Wales Premier of the day, Barry O'Farrell, he resigned because he failed to declare a bottle of red wine. Now, it wasn't any old bottle of red wine. It was an expensive bottle of Grange Hermitage, but, but he resigned on the spot. So why is Berejiklian still there? But Seven years ago, the Premier of the day, Barry O'Farrell, he resigned over something quite simple. The issue is that Barry O'Farrell didn't resign just because he failed to declare a bottle of red wine. It's because his enemies within the Liberal Party had a secret dossier of material that they were going to release against him, and they wanted him to go. So the, the bottle of red wine, that was just a distraction. It was like a code to that New South Wales Premier to say, well, if you don't resign now, you know, and we're giving you an, a convenient excuse to resign, we're going to destroy you as a person and your political career anyway by releasing all of this dirt against you. And that's how many political parties operate, if not all of them, all around Australia and especially in New South Wales. The opponents within a political party of the leader and they're, they're always going to be there. They accumulate the dirt on the leader and it's a combination of blackmail to get the leader to do what they want them to do. And good leaders will usually manage their opponents within their own party so that they don't cause trouble for them. But it seems that in this case, there is movement within the Liberal Party to remove Gladys Berejiklian. They probably haven't got the same type of secret dossier that was going to be used against Barry O'Farrell back in 2014. But they've got other methods that they can use to remove a successful and popular leader. Yeah, I think most of what they had on Gladys came out publicly with ICAC. I don't for a second suggest that she's taken illicit money, but she's allowed the flow of illicit money through turning a blind eye. I don't need to know about that when she clearly knew enough about it to know that she didn't need to know about it. 
and again, the standards should be that high. It should be higher than that. There's also talk about targets, vaccination targets, that is. The New South Wales Premier has suggested that we need to get 6 million vaccines by the end of August. That's just in a couple of weeks' time. Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, he's also talked about an 80% federal vaccination rate before we can open up. That's another target that they are talking about, although the Liberal Party generally doesn't like talking about targets. But what measures should be introduced so that those targets are met? Should premiers and prime ministers that talk about targets and they fail to be met for whatever reason, well, they have to be held responsible for that. Should they resign if those targets are not met? There are certain things that you stake your career on. When we go down to the very fundamental of what a government should be doing, that is keeping its populace safe and secure, then keeping it supported then keeping it economically sound. If you get the first two right, the third one's usually easier. A safe and secure supported population is better for the economy than the chaos that the the disaster capitalists want. Now, politicians make promises all the time, of course. John Howard notoriously said, he made a distinction between the promises, the core promises of an election campaign and the non-core promises what, and what he meant was the stuff that was really important to the philosophies and, and motivations of his government and the stuff that was less important to maintain those stuff. All governments have that. He was just brave or silly enough to say it out loud. And, of course, non-core promises tended to be the stuff that helped his opponents <laughs> and the core promises were tended to be the stuff that didn't help his opponents. They've been claiming they've saved 30,000 lives without any basis for those figures at all. And that's a fundamental failure of government. Barnaby Joyce wants government out of his life, but there's a lot of people who don't. Well, key performance indicators, that's quite a big thing within the business world. KPIs, as they're commonly known. So we could keep it quite simple for the New South Wales government and for the federal government one key performance indicator each, 6 million vaccines by the end of August. If you don't reach that, well, you step down. 80% of vaccination rate by, say, end of November, if you don't reach that. We don't have to add hotel quarantine issues or other things like that. Just have one key performance indicator each. And if they're not met, well, you stand down. So that would be something that we'd like to see in politics. The other issue is that If New South Wales ends up being difficult politically for the New South Wales government, and that's with the Delta outbreak and and other issues that relate to that, that's not a good sign for the federal government either. Scott Morrison is from New South Wales. So the successes or failures for Gladys Berejiklian, they will also become the success or failure for Scott Morrison as well. Although there's a lot of stepping stones that they actually both share. This outbreak would not have occurred in New South Wales if the vaccination rollout had started earlier and been more effective. And If those problems in hotel quarantine had been ironed out much earlier, then we wouldn't have the Delta outbreak. So they're both intrinsically linked in this whole process. So there are definitely problems within this outbreak that are linked to both Scott Morrison and Gladys Berejiklian. So it seems like they will stand together or they will fall together. I think you can make the argument that the whole outbreak rests on the shoulder of two people, and that's Scott Morrison and Gladys Berejiklian. They were helped by others, Greg Hunt, Brad Hazard, and we could probably find 
three or four other people who haven't helped. I think Dan Andrews, Stephen Marshall's, the ACT government, Anna Palaszczuk's job would have been made a lot easier without Morrison and Berejiklian resisting calls to act faster because they've both said on record, we have to live with the virus, which means letting it rip. The Swedish model and what Boris Johnson is trying in England, and it failed in Sweden horribly, and it's failing in England, uh, and there's no reason why it won't fail here. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, climate change is mainly what's happening up in the atmosphere, but it's the head-in-the-sand approach from the Australian government that's making the planet burn away. The Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change has released its climate change report and it's not a pretty picture that it paints. In the future, we'll see more floods, longer droughts, more extreme fires and, as we've seen recently in Greece, a warmer planet that has less rain, more cyclones and making it more difficult for human existence. It's the first major report that is produced since 1990 and at that time the IPCC acknowledged that the world had a 30-year time frame to implement meaningful climate change action and at that time it actually suggested that even a 30-year time frame might be too late anyway but we've reached that point right now. This isn't the wake-up call, That's the wake-up calls have been happening over the past 40 years and most of them have been ignored. The IPCC has called this a code red for humanity. This is the only planet that we've got. We can't move to Mars, Saturn or Neptune. But the federal government is intent on not just ignoring the wake-up calls, but ignoring the code red for humanity as well. Scott Morrison has said that he won't be signing a blank check to targets without plans. He's been using that three-word slogan, technology, not taxes. He keeps talking about unproven methods such as carbon capture. We've talked about this before. We know that the Liberal Party is not keen on targets of any kind, but even committing to a carbon reduction plan by 2050, that's almost 30 years away, you'd think that this might be an easy step for them, but it just seems to be beyond this government. 30 years in the future, it's a great good news story, isn't it? By 2050, we'll have done this, we'll have done this, we'll have done this, and you can start the baby steps towards it. And I'm pretty sure he won't be around in 2050. Billy Hughes got to 92 or 93. I suppose Morrison could. But he won't be Prime Minister then, or highly, highly unlikely he'll be Prime Minister then. He could do what he loves doing, which is making announcements and then not actually having to follow through with them. So I don't quite understand, except they're so scared of their donors. Gina Reinhart worried that she'll lose $100 an hour when she's making thousands a second that he's just not prepared to do it. Barnaby Joyce was not going to follow up on disciplining George Christensen because he was worried about forcing a by-election. It's insane. The cowardice of these people to deal with 
their donors is immense and is damaging the country and is damaging the planet. And I don't understand what type of legacy they're going for. Surely you want the history books to say, well, maybe this bit was wrong, but they got at least the most important parts right. Because as far as I understand, that's what every other prime minister has gone for. And some have got it and some haven't because, you know, there are some things out of your control. But to actively not chase the best just defeats me as a career objective. And it's the same people that are lining up behind Scott Morrison. You mentioned some of these names before, Matt Canavan, Barnaby Joyce, George Christensen. They've got the same level of denial, the same support that they put out for the fossil fuel industries. Matt Canavan has actually got a clear conflict of interest here. His family owns a coal production company. Barnaby Joyce has got shares and properties in the New South Wales gas fields that will greatly benefit from an increase in fossil fuel production. So there's definitely a lot of Liberal Party and National Party members of Parliament that are clearly lining up behind Scott Morrison. There are other Liberal Party members, such as Celia Hammond in Perth. She's the MP who replaced Julie Bishop in the seat of Curtin. They are speaking out, not so prominently, but they are saying that people want to move on from the climate change wars. There are voices within the Liberal Party Party, but they're not very, very strong. The other issue for the federal government is that every problem that they have is answered with gas. Mm. COVID commission was filled with gas industry people. And if you've got a problem with a pandemic, well, gas is the answer. If you've got a problem with climate change, gas is the answer there. So these commissions are all filled with industry spews and hangers on. They just want to have a piece of the action of the gas production industry. Every question, every problem that's out there is all resolved with gas, hydrogen, a three-word slogan such as technology, not taxes. This isn't the way of the future, surely. No, it's not. Sure, private enterprise does a lot of very good research and development. But how long is it going to be before the Tesla, or more likely the cars that copy the Tesla, are mainstream? Maybe not that long. Well, it probably won't be too long before electric cars do take off, but this is what Scott Morrison said before the election back in 2019. Bill Shorten wants to end the weekend when it comes to his policy on electric vehicles, where you've got Australians who who love being out there in their four-wheel drives. He wants to say, see you later, to the SUV um, when it comes to the choices of Australians. And this is fundamentally the difference between us and Labor when it comes to these issues. And now he's changed his tune. He actually mentioned in Parliament this week that he never said those words back in 2019. So it's a clear example of even when all the evidence is recorded and there's documentary information that refutes what Scott Morrison has said previously, he'll just deny it. And that's probably a side issue at this stage. But the main factor is that industry is way ahead of this federal government on environmental technology and the public conception or the public thinking about environmental issues and climate change is way ahead of the government and that's a good situation but then you do have to consider well the only change that the public can really make is a vote every three or four years for to vote in different political parties but on a day-to-day basis or a week-by-week basis they haven't got the control of this situation it's politicians within government that can make these changes and at the moment the Liberal Party and the National Party and doing nothing about climate change. The Labor Party isn't coming out too strongly about climate change action either. They have to balance the inner city seats of Melbourne and Sydney that they need to hang on to 
with the seats in Queensland and Western Australia that they need to win to form government at the next election. So they were quite badly burnt during the 2019 election and politically they don't want to make the same mistakes that they made during the last election. Like obviously the Australian Greens are supportive of climate change action and the environment. That's their bread and butter. That's what they do. But it's almost like a situation where the climate and the environment, it just doesn't have a friend in politics. The Liberal and the National parties, they're in federal government. They're opposed to climate change action and there's a Labor Party that doesn't have the courage at this stage to even talk about climate change on a meaningful level. As I did mention that climate change caused a lot of political problems for the Labor Party in the 2019 federal election, primarily because they didn't manage the politics of climate change very well. But this is a problem for all of politics. We've got two parties in government, the Liberal Party and the National Party, that don't want to do anything at all about climate change. A Labor Party, an opposition that could do something about climate change if they form government, but they're not talking about climate change at all. And the Australian Greens, they will, of course, talk about and support climate change action, but they haven't got any chance of forming government. One of the things that people can do is become informed and then stop buying or stop consuming the stuff that doesn't inform, that obfuscates. It's not just Murdoch, although Murdoch's a big part of it. There are other media outlets that don't tell the whole truth. Now, the interesting thing is, is that a lot of liberal voters are very concerned about the environment. They may believe that it's an individual choice to, to fix it, but that if all individuals do their little bit, it'll work. And there's certainly a merit to that idea. Tony Abbott, in the very safe liberal seat of Warringa, was soundly defeated by Zali Stegall over climate change. What's not fully understood about Zali Stegall is that she's an economic conservative. That's neither here nor there for these purposes. But what got her elected, apart from a good campaign, but what the thing that she was able to highlight to the voters of Warringah was that she was very concerned about the environment and was prepared to stand up for it. I think that there is a disconnect And this is true in New South Wales, and this is true in the federal level. The disconnect is between what the cabinet made up of extremists want and what the people who are voting for them want. And I think next election may be very interesting for this reason. The IPCC, it's not a collection of strange people that just want to cause trouble for the world community or anything like that. It's it's an influential group of scientists, business leaders, experts, former political leaders as well. And the criticisms that have been made about this IPC report is that it's actually too conservative in its outlook. And as damning as as its report is, the criticisms have been that it hasn't gone far enough. The other factor is the IPCC is actually part of the United Nations. So people such as Craig Kelly, George Christian, and they'll attack this as the New World Order manifesto and all that sort of stuff. It's not as broad as something like the Club of Rome, which they produced a climate change book in 1991, which is actually a fantastic book. It's called The Limits to Growth. And the Club of Rome, that's also an influential group of scientists, business leaders, experts and former political leaders. They actually first released the climate emergency plan in 1972. That's almost 50 years ago. And and if you're interested in a bit of history about climate change options, those two publications are excellent resources, but it's also a depressing reminder of all the actions that should have taken place over the past 50 years, but have largely been ignored. So the point that I'm making is that the IPCC 
is made up of good, influential people. And Mary Robinson, she was previously the president of Ireland. So she's been talking about Australia really needing to... They're running the risk of being left behind at the moment and Australia runs the risk of being an international pariah if it doesn't take action on climate change. There's a strong possibility, you've referred to this before, that people need to start taking actions by themselves. They need to be more informed about this process. But it doesn't really matter what the Australian government does or doesn't do. Uh, Recalcitrants such as Australia will be forced to act and that's the intention of the United States government is to introduce a carbon tariff system for countries all around the world. So countries can choose not to act, but they'll pay for it. And this will ultimately bring countries like Australia into line. Yeah. The only thing that's going to work is pressure. I think Australia is becoming somewhat of a trade pariah. And I think too, there was this gamble that Britain leaving the EU would be a, a boon for Australia to form this little bubble of trade that didn't need the bigger trade blocks who can enforce things like you need to put a carbon tax in you need to reduce carbon emissions this is the conditions with which we will trade with you and if if you won't do it we will find plenty of countries who will and with brexit being a failure at least in the short term before we get angry comments saying it hasn't failed yet with trump gone with china really demonstrating how little it cares about australian trade with the current American administration, less comfortable in dealing with Australia. If things don't change really quickly, we're in a lot more trouble than we already are. So just a few other points in politics, because there's always something happening. There have been calls from the former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, for a COVID inquiry to set up some sort of commission that looks at the management of the pandemic. Now, I'm not sure what he's actually calling for or what sort of results he wants to see. I'd put up my hand immediately. I'd say, yes, there should be an inquiry into the management of the pandemic in Australia, but not one that Tony Abbott would have anything to do with it because he'd be looking for support for vested interests, to looking at a way of exonerating the performances of the Liberal and the National parties. So yes to an inquiry, but no for Tony Abbott to have anything to do with it. Yeah. One of the funny things about Tony Abbott was how he could come up with the truth inadvertently, which never helped him very much. Joe Hockey too, because they were men who didn't do very much self-reflection. So when Joe Hockey spoke about leaners, not lifters, thinking he was scoring a political point against his opponents, he actually scored an own goal because it very quickly highlighted who the leaners were. Tony, too, talking about open corruption, getting $4,000 in cash as a young backbencher and being advised to give it to the party where it would be given back to him in various ways. Now, Again, this is where Tony Abbott has told the truth. Yes, there should be a COVID inquiry. I'd almost go so far to say it should be run by some eminent jurist from England or Europe or America or Canada or somewhere with a relatively similar legal structure to here who can look at it 
totally objectively without the emotional pull of what has happened here over the last two years. Yeah, the Tony Abbott COVID commission would look a lot like a Gladys Berejiklian commission with the judge not being able to release their findings until it had been cleared through all the experts, including business and other vested interests. Some prime ministers need to think more about themselves. Well, it is good the form of prime ministers keeping the public eye in this sort of way and Tony Abbott, the suppository of wisdom. So, yeah, that's something that we should all look forward to. The government also made an announcement that they've made an agreement with Moderna. That's one of the other players in the vaccine field. And so we can stop talking about Pfizer and AstraZeneca all the time. We'll have another one to talk about as well, Moderna. They did say that they've signed an agreement, but we don't actually know what that means. And with this federal government, you have to wait until things are delivered before you can actually assess whether they're doing the right thing or not. So an agreement has been signed. We still don't know when Moderna vaccines will actually arrive. It's an mRNA type of vaccine, very similar to Pfizer. So let's see if that creates additional problems for the vaccine rollout. The three main vaxxers should have been available at the same time. And then informed non-panic choices could be made. I, I saw the other day the construction industry is able to go back to work, provided they're vaccinated. Now, I have all kinds of issues that the construction industry can go back to work yet Here in entertainment, we'll be the last ones on board as usual. But I'm not opposed to people being able to go back to work under proper health advice. A lot of the builders don't want to take the AstraZeneca because of the very bad messaging of the government. They want to wait for the Pfizer. But since it's at least a six-week wait, they're unable to, to go back to work. So the unions have stepped in and they're going to try and negotiate some other form of being able to go back to work. And all that is well and good. But again, had the government done the job properly at the beginning, none of this would be happening. Everyone would be able to go and get their vaccinations, go back to work, and we wouldn't have a problem. We'd be New Zealand. Occasionally, somebody would come into the country with it, and in the worst case, a three- or four-day local lockdown and back to work. Good decisions tend to divide problems. Bad decisions tend to multiply them, and we've just seen bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. Now, we heard the name Tony Abbott before. He's someone that appears in the public spotlight occasionally. The other thing that we hear of frequently within the media and within politics is the Corruption Commission. It's talked about every once in a while, and then it disappears for a little while. So it did reappear last week. Now, it's three years since Scott Morrison promised a federal commission into corruption. So that's an ongoing federal ICAC that will be looking at all these issues of corruption within federal politics. Three years since it was promised and nothing yet. And it's one of those issues that keeps popping up occasionally, either by the opposition or some of the backbenchers, but then drops away. What will be on its agenda? I can imagine that there'll be a lot coming in from the COVID era, the sports rorts, car parks. It will be quite busy when it first sets up. There'll be a lot of issues to arise from the management of the pandemic and especially in a place like New South Wales like today there's just been an announcement that there's 390 coronavirus cases today in Sydney and you're wondering well is that something that would appear at a federal corruption commission as well are there other issues that we could look at behind why these numbers keep rising and nothing is being done about it it's obvious why they don't want a corruption commission he'd lose at least three ministers 
including the leader of the National Party, Angus Taylor. I suspect there's at least another one or two who would go down very, very quickly. One of the more baffling things that Anthony Albanese said was that he'd never seen corruption in the federal government. Now, I'm quite prepared to believe that he's never been exposed to it personally, but there's no way he's not seen it. (laughs) Uh, We've all seen it, Anthony. And it doesn't mean that just because you've seen it, you're corrupt or that you could even do very much about it at the time, apart from report it to the relevant figures. I think the Liberal Party learnt from setting up ICAC in the 1990s and the first major figure to go down was the Premier who led the government that set it up, which was Nick Greiner. Because the corruption was so entrenched, he didn't realise that offering a plum job to a problematic crossbencher was corruption. <laughs> That's how. And he even said, oh, Bob Menzies would be able to do this and no one would blink an eye. It's still corruption. It's a self-corruption and there are worse corruptions. Yeah, you weren't importing drugs and having people killed and turning a blind eye when Luna Park got burnt down and, and wrecking the heritage of a place because there was a legal casino, etc. That's good. But there was still lots of corruption that happens that, yeah, you might call it soft corruption, which still retards and prevents. Fast forward to today, the New South Wales government has cut the funding of ICAC three or four times in the last five years. I don't think she's going to cut it at the moment because that would be very blatant. At a federal level, they know that there'd be a lot of their own people go down first. That's not to say there isn't corruption. I think the only relatively major party that's never had a corruption scandal is the Greens. There's been a couple of uh, other scandals, but so far as we can tell, they're either very, very clever or very, very honest. They've never been tied up in corruption. Of course, they're a small party without much influence too, and if their influence grows, that may change. And I'm not talking about current members of the Greens party, by the way, down the track, when the careerists start to be attracted by Mm. positions in the Greens, that may change things. Well, I was going to suggest that the only political party that doesn't have any corruption in it is a political party that doesn't exist yet. So there's always, (laughs) corruption is corruption. There's always avenues for corruption and there needs to be a federal ICAC and the sooner that's introduced, the better. And earlier on this week, there was also a news poll that was released. There's no change in the two-party preference vote. The Liberal National Party vote is still down at 47% and the Labor Party is at 53%. But it does seem like there is a pattern that is setting in and it might be there for some time and it might not actually change until there's a leadership change. Tony Abbott was in office for two years. Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister for just under three years. And Scott Morrison is coming up to three years in the position of Prime Minister. So the Liberal Party does have a recent habit of removing a Prime Minister before an election and presenting a new face so that we just forget what they've done in office. And maybe they'll do that again for the next election as well. I I think the strategy is, oh, you've got to give the new fella a go. He hasn't had a go yet. And it will be a he, I think. And there's just enough of the population who think, yeah, that's fair. He's only had six or eight months in office. We better give him a good go to see what he's really worth. Turns out that he's not really worth very much at all. Gets dumped three years into it. Well, we better give the new... I don't know how many times this is going to work before people wise up to it. And I think the credibility and the political capital might all be burned away. But I don't know. We'll have to see. 
Well, it's also that point that it's a marketing strategy. That if you've got a product that isn't working or it's not selling very well, well, you change the name of the product. And it's probably the same within government as well. It was successful for them in the lead up to the 2016 election. They would have lost that election under Tony Abbott, but they put Malcolm Turnbull in. He just scraped in. Similar thing with Malcolm Turnbull in 2018, 2019. They got rid of him nine months before the election. It was a fresh face. People tended to forget about how bad the Turnbull government was because he was no longer there. In the same way that they forgot about the Abbott government and how terrible they were because he was no longer there at the 2016 election. So this can be a strategy within a political party or a political process, but you're right, you can't just keep changing your your leader before an election. It didn't work for the Labor Party, it did work for the Liberal Party, so if it's a winning formula for them, they may try it again, but you can't keep doing this. I think too, COVID is the great equaliser. Just seeing today's figures, 391 in New South Wales at the time of recording, 25 of those in Dubbo. That's just from the headline. Those figures are too big to forget. It's getting to the point where I would guess by next week, we will all know somebody who has it. And we've all known someone or we've all had to take tests because we've been in an exposed area anyway. So it's not getting better. And this type of thing is the type of thing that electors don't forget, I think. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.